Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, where each week we discuss new ideas and tactics to help you succeed in business, relationships, and life. And now your host, Tim Stoddard. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddard. Welcome to the Tim Stodds Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest today is a hero of mine. He is the legendary Seth Godin. Seth Godin has a book out now called The Practice. In this episode of the podcast, we talk in depth about the practice and what it means to participate in creative work every day. And more importantly, this was a huge opportunity for me. It was a huge honor for me to speak to somebody that has such a huge impact on my life and my creative work and my career. Uh, I've read all of Seth's books. I've been reading his blog Uh, basically daily for the past 10 years. And it was really a privilege and an honor to have this conversation with him. So please help me welcome my guest, Seth Godin. Mr. Seth Godin, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm really excited to talk about your new book and some of these new ideas that you got coming into the world. Well, thank you for having me. It'll be fun. Yeah. So before we get into the practice, which I'm, I'm very excited to learn about and hear more about, I did want to start with uh, an introduction with how you were brought into my life, and that is with the book Lynchpin. I think that book has had more of an impact on me than, um, I mean, geez, maybe Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill is up there, but I think those two books really changed like the trajectory of my work and my career. And uh, and just real quick, I want to read something which I wrote on my wall and I've had it on my wall every day. The linchpins among us are the ones are not the ones born with a magical talent. No, they are people who have decided that this new kind of work is important and train themselves to do it. So my first question is, how did that insight come to you? And why do you think that's so important in today's workforce? Um, first, a move that you had that on your wall. It's an optimistic statement. It's optimistic because I believe that we are capable of more and that we cannot allow society, systems, people have been putting stuff on us to control what we believe is possible. Mm -hmm. And the alternative is to say, you get what you get, accept what you get and suffer. And I have a hard time with that. So, I have benefited from privilege my whole life. There are other people who have not, who have been oppressed, who have been told they have no right to speak up or to be seen or to be heard. And that happened and it's real. And so then the question is, what should we do about it? What should we do about it as individuals? And what should we do about it as a society? And as a society, it feels to me like we have an obligation to open the door for people, to help them believe to help them realize they're capable of overcoming things. But as individuals, that happened. So what should we do? And I think what we should do is believe in ourselves enough to go on the journey, to enroll in the journey. And that doesn't mean it will be easy or that it will work, but it means that this practice of developing a voice, developing skills, figuring out how to be the generous connector that you're capable of, that feels like the best of all possible paths forward, especially in a world that's not fair. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue into 
where I wanted to go with that because you talk about the practice, you talk about this habit of, of shipping work and developing patterns, I guess you could say. And in that idea is that there's no such thing as writer's block. And I have counted, well, I haven't counted, I can recall countless times in which I've sat down to write something and, <laughs> and like nothing comes to mind. I have no inspiration and I, and I can hear it. There's no such thing as writer's block. There's no such thing as writer's block. And so like logically, I know what you mean. I know that this is just my work. And as a professional, I show up to do my work. But like emotionally, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that the, 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 the work or the insight comes out of me. So then like my question is how, how do we wrestle with those demons? That's the battle between, you know, my logic side and my emotional side so that I can continue to produce work. Right. I love this question. The practice is largely about this question. Yeah. Um, what does it mean for there to be writer's block? First of all, writer's block was only invented 130 years ago. There was no phrase writer's block. People didn't suffer from writer's block. Uh, it's worth noting no one gets plumber's block. You call up the plumber, they come to your house, they don't say, oh, I don't think I can fix this leak. Do you have a scotch or a whiskey or some heroin? That doesn't happen ever. <laughs> because plumbers understand their job is to do plumbing. Yeah. And sometimes they do really good inspired plumbing and the rest of the time they simply do plumbing. Writing takes many forms. I'm not talking about a novel. I'm simply talking about finding your voice, showing up to say what you want to say, to cause the change you seek to make in the world, saying, I don't know what my podcast should be about this week. I don't know how to have a conversation with this employee. I don't know how to, I mean, we can go down the list. We get blocked in all of these things, except we are not blocked. What we are is we are being picky and saying, I don't want to do a bad job. Because if you are capable of typing with your fingers, you are capable of doing a bad job of writing. You are capable of having a conversation that isn't going to work. You are capable of singing a song that no one wants to hear. We know that. We know that the bad stuff is possible. So it's not that you have writer's block. It's that you are afraid of bad writing. Those are two totally different things. And so the lesson of the practice is, if you want good writing, you got to sign up for bad writing. That if you are willing to do bad writing in whatever form writing takes for you, you can make your writing better. So you're not blocked. What you are is stuck. And those are different things. And the way to get unstuck is to do mediocre work in private and then improve it. Because we don't experience flow and then do our work. We do our work and then we experience flow. Okay, and I think accidentally or, or maybe not accidentally, but you just solved kind of this weird riddle for me where in my view, it was always, if you write every day, you have to publish everything that you write. And I spent a long time struggling a little bit with thinking that if I write it, I need to ship it. But how you just said right there that you do mediocre work in private. So from like a practical standpoint, is it more 
advantageous for me or anybody listening to this. And, and I like how you said, whatever that form of writing is for you. Like for me, it's words on a page. For some people, it's, it's painting or speaking or doing a podcast or whatever. So to, to in, embark on this practice, does it always have to be in public? Can it just be me by myself alone? Right. So now we're getting into the overlap of marketing and creativity. Uh, the marketer in me says, if you regularly ship junk, your reputation isn't going to be very good. Mm. Um, the writer in me will tell you about the late Isaac Asimov, who was a friend of mine. Isaac invented the conception of a robot. If you have ever seen a robot in a movie or uh, a book, he invented that. Wow. He wrote 400 books that were published, 400 published books. And I said, Isaac, how do you do that? And he said, every morning I get up and I walk over to this manual typewriter and he showed me the table. And he said, from 6.30 to noon, I type. And I don't have to type good stuff, but I have to type. Well, if you type for 30 hours a week, that's enough. You could write 1,000 books, 10,000 books at 30 hours a week. Typing is not why books take a long time. So what Isaac did was after he was done typing, he would then throw out most of it and publish the rest. And I've written a blog every day. I've written 7,500 blog posts in a row. You've only read a quarter of the blog posts I've written. The rest are deleted or in some file somewhere. I don't write one blog post a day. I write several blog posts a day, but I publish one of them. And we are capable of doing that in whatever format we work in. The art of it is figuring out how to workshop our way through the practice without getting hung up on editing while we are creating. I think that's got to be so encouraging for people to hear and myself included, because the viewpoint is that people who have succeeded in creative work and in whatever that definition is, that they just nail it first time. You know, and I've read your blog for years. Like I, I, I haven't read them all, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, certainly it's, it's part of your reputation. And I always just assumed that you wake up in the morning and you just have instantly some hit of inspiration and some brilliant idea comes to you and you type it out and you hit enter and then boom, it's out there in the world. And to hear you say that, like, that isn't the case is, uh, I don't want to say that it's reassuring, but it's, I think it's encouraging for people to hear that like, it's not about being perfect the first time. Oh, it's not even close. And if you're a music fan, you can go buy the demo tapes of Billy Joel. You can go buy the demos and work in progress of Bob Dylan for most of his major albums. And you can buy the demo tapes for Crosby, Stills and Nash. Each one of which, you know, cost you 10 bucks. They're terrible. They're just terrible. And it's not just that they don't sound like they're supposed to. And it's not just that they're out of tune. It's that they didn't figure it out. And the, the one that's stuck in your head. Yeah. That's the 42nd one. It's not the first one. Yeah. What a, what a reassuring way to look at it. I, Thank you for that, because you honestly answered a 10-year question for me as I've been following along with this. It's like, but I don't get it. If I keep putting this out there and it sucks, then all I'm doing is kind of damaging my reputation. And so, so <laughs> thank you personally for You're clearing welcome. that Thanks up. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Elaborating on that idea, 
Um, well, actually, this isn't even elaborating. This, this just goes right into it. At first, in my first five years, um, I would do exactly that. And I would think about mediocrity. And I would think about, about my reputation as, as I started to build an audience. And you know, I built my email list. And I made a name for myself in the particular industry that I was writing for. Um, my thoughts were all over the place. And my writing was all over the place. And, and in, in the practice and some of the ideas that you put forward, you, you talk about creating with intent. And I think the word was, uh, forgive me if I don't quote this exactly, but like professionals work with intent, um, with, with a purpose in mind. So I guess I don't quite understand where you're going with that. And I would just like a little bit more insight on it. Sure. Lots to share here. Um, yeah. Authenticity is dramatically overrated. Mm. That the internet decided that authenticity was important. They should say whatever comes to mind. It should be the true version of you. Yeah. Except if you go to a concert, you don't want them to do that. You want their very best version of them. And if you go to the hospital, you don't want the doctor to be in a bad mood because they had an argument with their spouse. You want the very best version of them. In fact, everything that we interact with, we are asking the professional to bring us what they promised not to be authentic. And the same thing is true when we are creating what we're in this conversation calling writing, our creative practice, which is we sign up for something. We have a genre. We fit into something. We rhyme. We, you know, the thing is, you could watch any episode of Monty Python or any episode of Star Trek, the original series, or any episode of The Sopranos. Not any whole episode, any 12 seconds of it. And you know exactly yeah, what is. you're watching. Yeah. It rhymes with itself, right? Well, your work needs to rhyme with itself. And so you signed up for that boundary. I can't start running a lot of recipes on my blog. Because even though authentically, I might want to share with you my recipe for Maknidal, which keeps getting a little bit better and would be generous for me to share, it's not in the boundaries of what I signed up to do as a professional blogger. Now, the thing about boundaries is it makes your work better, not worse. That what we know, for example, about sailboats is the second slowest, the slowest direction for a sailboat to go is directly into the wind. You can't do that. But the second slowest direction is directly with the wind, which surprises a lot of people. But in fact, it's only when you're going across, when you have something to lean against, when you have a boundary, that the boat is able to go the way you want it to go. And my argument here is, if you're complaining about the constraints, what you're really doing is trying to hide, because the constraints are a platform that let you do better work. This is the second time in a month that the idea of restraint and constraints has come up on my show. And somebody shared something with me recently that really stuck with me. And it was, it's a little bit deep and I try not to get too deep on the show, but the quote was, was so good where if God can be everywhere and see everything and, and go anywhere, what's the one thing that he or she lacks, right? And it's limitation. And so like all art, and all beauty that like people can create, like the one thing that we have over that is just this idea of restraint is, is limitation. And uh, 
I thought that was just really beautiful and how it put it, it made me feel better about the idea of like picking a lane and, and trying to be my best in that lane. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'll give you an, an example. Yours is sublime. Mine is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> there are a bunch of constraints that magicians have and there are a bunch of constraints that the TV show Saturday night live has. And a really long time ago, more than 30 years ago, Lauren Michael broke both of them. And Penn and Teller were on, and they did a really cool juggling act. And I'm going to ruin the trick. It doesn't matter. It's a long time ago. They filmed them upside down with cameras upside down. So the gravity was all backwards. And it's hard to visualize, but try to imagine that when they threw something one direction, it went the other. Mm -hmm. And that's cheating. It was brilliant because they erased a constraint. They made gravity something we cannot reverse, reverse. They made Saturday Night Live, which is supposed to be honest and live, neither. And by breaking the constraints, they made people gasp because it was clever. But ultimately, it was shallow and not satisfying because it made you trust everybody a little bit less. And so much better to have somebody do honest deception within the constraints that are available than to bring in something from outside that they're not allowed to do because now we don't know what, how to handle it. And that's why great artists use a canvas or a piece of sculpture. They have constraints. It can't be bigger than this and it has to use the paints that came in the kit because with those constraints, now we have a chance to express ourselves. But if we have no constraints, there's no, there's no boundary. Okay, so another personal, almost self-serving question here is, as a person who, uh, well, I guess giving you a little bit of context, I, I have a website that I started, which is about recovery, right? It helps people that have struggled with addiction. Um, and I understand the restraint there. But for me personally, like I'm more than just a writer or somebody that's like, I'm a lot of things. I love fitness and I love going on hikes with my wife and, you know, maybe making some videos about that. So like, how do I serve the creative need that I have to just talk about my life and talk about all these other things that I'm into? Yeah. So you go to Starbucks to get a Frappuccino and the barista says, well, actually I play the ukulele. And instead of making a Frappuccino, they play you a song on the ukulele, (laughs) right? You're probably not going back to that Starbucks anytime soon because that's not the deal. So you have a website that says, there's this person I'm calling Tim and Tim is going to write here about the recovery journey. But guess what? Websites are free. So you can have another website Mm. and say, there's this other guy named Tim. Don't worry about that other thing he does. Here's where he's going to talk about his travel, his spouse, his walks in the park, whatever. And now you've made a new set of constraints, but they free you from, so you get to decide where to put it. It fits the medium. And again, if you want to have a hobby, I love hobbies. I have more hobbies than most people. Just don't expect to get paid for it. Just don't expect that you're doing it. You know, I don't carve canoe paddles out of cherry wood for other people. I carve them for me. That's who I'm pleasing. And I'll make them when I want to make them the way I want to make them. But I'm going to show up in the world and say, I wrote a book. 
would you like to buy it and read it? Then I got to make a promise and I got to keep it. And it's not a hobby anymore. It's a profession. Yeah. And then I, I just love how all of those lanes connect, right? Because that's when you talk about going pro. That's when you talk about showing up every day and doing that work that's expected of you for the people that expect it for the price that they expect it for. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So another one of the things that I've been puzzled about in terms of the, the message that you have in, in the practice, especially is you talk so much about shipping work and about creative work and about um, the difference between advertising and marketing, right? And all of these things have like a, a, a business entrepreneurial undertone to them. But I've noticed that you rarely go into that like entrepreneurial mindset, like this is how you make money from it. And gosh, putting myself in, in other people's shoes and even in my shoes, I, I have been searching a lot of times for like that insight, like, oh, wow, this is really great. I'm, I'm shipping my best work and like, I feel good about it, but like, cool, how do I get paid, right? Like, what is the strategy so that people say like, here's some cash, now give me that thing. And, um, and yeah, so like, I guess the question is, how do you combine this practice with monetizing work? Okay, so there are two parts to your question. One part is, how do you maximize the yield on your time to make the most money? And the answer is, I've never written a book about that. And I have no interest in writing a book about that. Mm. Because that involves understanding the systems at play, giving up what you think might be important other than maximizing revenue to maximize revenue. And there are other people who can teach you how to do that. I don't want to teach you how to do that. But what is also in my work, what not also, but what is in my work is 20, 30 books worth of me saying, if you create something in a marketplace that is scarce, that some people want, they will eagerly pay you for it. Now, there's a lot in that one sentence because some things like um, the ability to make a homepage in WordPress are no longer scarce. You can go to Fiverr and buy that for $7. So if it, you need to be able to sell it for 700 and you're as good as those people, no one's going to buy it from you for $700. They're going to buy it from someone else for seven because it's not scarce. Or if you make something that takes an enormous amount of heart and soul and people don't want it, they're not going to pay for that either mm. because it costs you a lot, but it's not worth a lot to me. And so this is marketing, which is the book before this one, plus permission marketing plus tribes adds up to how do I find the smallest viable audience of people, a group of people that's big enough to sustain me who will have their lives get better because I showed up with something that was scarce. That sentence is how you make money. Now, in a digital world, showing up with something that's scarce is not easy. Mm. There's going to be a million books published on the Kindle this year. Writing a book on the Kindle does not, by definition, mean you made something scarce. On the other hand, 
If you write a book on the Kindle that every single taxidermist in New Hampshire needs to read because it's going to be their shared understanding of how the world is, and you're a taxidermist in New Hampshire and you didn't read it, you have a problem because the group you seek to align with is talking about something and you are not. So that is a valid smallest viable audience because there might be a thousand of them and at $100 each for the PDF, you can make a living doing that. That's specific. But if you write a romance novel, well, the people on the Kindle are gonna say, well, if this wasn't here, I'd just buy a different romance novel. It's not scarce because it's not in demand because there's so many other choices. So this goes back to the idea of hobby. So a good friend of mine plays the banjo. He's very good at it. But he's not Bella Fleck or Abigail Washburn. And Bella Fleck and Abigail Washburn can sell out a theater back in the day when we went to theaters. How can they sell out a theater? People aren't going because it's the only banjo in town. Alan plays the banjo for free. They're going because they got to tell their friends they went to see Bella and Abigail. That's what's on sale is the fact that the most famous banjo players in the world other than Steve Martin are coming to town. That's what you went to see, not to hear banjo. You can hear banjo at home on Spotify for free. So being really clear about our craft helps us be clear about our practice. Because on one hand, you don't want a job where you do what you're told all day. That's the opposite of linchpin. On the other hand, you can't have a job where you get to do whatever you want and then get paid a lot for it. Because no one has that job. People like to say that they have that job, but like <laughs> nobody really has that job. <laughs> uh, wow, that was very moving. And I think the place that I would go with that is in the practice, you talk about the idea of avoiding certainty. And I think that's what people are looking for. At yep. least what like most businesses are looking for. That's the whole reason why you know, I've spent hours writing business plans and marketing plans and keyword research and all that other stuff to give myself this idea of certainty that the work that I will do will pay off. And so to a degree, it does do that because I think that there is value in research and data, but there's really not also at the same, <laughs> at the same time, like you never know what's going to happen. Well, let me argue that a good business plan is not about certainty. A good business plan is about smart questions. Mm. A good business plan says, here are the known constraints that everyone can agree upon. If my business doesn't exist, is anyone going to miss it? And if I'm going to show up with these constraints in place, what are the four questions I better be able to have a good answer to about what I'm going to do next? Now, my answer to those questions might not guarantee it's going to work. But it's really clear that if I don't have an answer to those questions, I'm going to fail. And anything we're doing that's causing change to happen has to have uncertainty associated with it. Because if it was certain, then the change would have already happened. Mm. Well, agree totally. And that's uncomfortable to hear because like you mentioned before in a digital world with so many people playing, like it's harder and harder to be more and more scarce. Yep. So, like how, 
how would you advise the, the practice that the art is going to separate you from all the other people that are trying to do the same thing? Well, I think we have to begin by understanding genre. If you are a sculptor, you are not competing with a professional uh, juggler or somebody who does plumbing. You are only trying to be able to reach people who are in the market to buy a sculpture. And that's a very limited group of people who have a very limited number of choices. And then we can say, all right, well, how do they decide? How do they decide to acquire a sculpture? How do they decide to talk about a sculpture? How do they, all of these decisions are about who you are seeking to serve with your art. And some creators refuse to have this conversation. And I find it very frustrating. So in the book, I quote Nobel Prize winner, Bob Dylan, who is also a serial liar. Um, I quote him talking about how a ghost comes to him in the middle of the night and tells him what to write. This is just not true. I am very certain that a ghost is not writing Bob Dylan's <laughs> songs. And I'm also certain that Bob Dylan knows after he's played a song, whether it's a Bob Dylan song or not. Mm. If it's not a Bob Dylan song, you're not going to hear it on one of his records. Because Bob Dylan always sounds like Bob Dylan. That is part of his craft. That he has established that for people who want Bob Dylan, there's only one person to buy Bob Dylan from, and it's him. Right? And so what we get to do as someone who's going to adopt a practice is say, if I got ever more daring at this, ever more grounded in this, ever more clear about this, is there ever a situation in which I could be a professional at it? Has anyone ever gone from where I am to the other side where there's a line out the door of true fans who are waiting to engage with the work? Mm. And if the answer is no, then you probably found a hobby. And that's okay. I love hobbies but you shouldn't mortgage your house for a hobby. On the other hand, if the genre exists and there are systems in place to permit people who are willing to lean into it to do that work, right? Then, yeah, I think that they're going to be buying original symphonies from people who write original symphonies going forward. Not very many, but if you commit to the practice, each one that you do will sound more like you. And each one that you do is more likely to get closer to where you hope to go. So you can commit to that journey, but you can't do it saying, and I need it to work. Mm. You have to do it saying, I'm committing to the practice. And if I commit to the practice, I have found the best way for it to work, but it comes with no guarantee. Yeah. It's always, again, very, it's like a breath of fresh air to hear you talk about that the difference between a hobby and uh, it might not work because, you know, I'm not on social media really at all anymore. Right. I used to spend a lot of time on it and, um, and it's just very easy to gain attention by talking about like, Oh, just find your passion and go all in, you know, and like hustle and hustle. But I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, if I'm trying to make a business, uh, what's something I suck at baking, right? Like, and I, ha I go all in on baking cakes and I name them something really unique and special, but like my cakes just suck. No one's going to buy them. And like, I can commit, like you said, to that journey. 
but it doesn't mean it's going to work. And I just think that's an important conversation to have. So, yeah. Um, okay, Seth. Well, you've answered really all my questions and there's one last thing that I'm, I'm interested in to talking to you about, and this goes to my journey when I first discovered your work. And I sent that to you in an email back when, uh, Success Magazine used to send out those CDs. Back uh -huh. CDs. And it was only like 10 years ago, which is so crazy to think. But uh, I, I, I played the CD and I was going through like a rough time in my life. And I listened to that interview and the interview or the, they always used to ask pieces of advice at the end of those interviews. And I will never forget it till the day I die. I said, what should somebody do? And you said, start a blog, don't tell anybody and write it in it every day. I can even hear it, like the tone in your voice, right? And so that's what I did. I, I started a blog on Blogspot back when Blogspot was a thing. And I, I started writing it every day. And it's, it's gotten to me where I am. It's gotten me to where I am now. But the, where I'm going with that is, like, is that still your piece of advice? Is that still part of the practice? Is it still really that simple? Where if you want to get started start a blog, don't tell anybody and write in it every day. Like with all these new ways of creating content and, and getting your message out there, I, I think a lot when people ask me like, well, where do I get started? And it's still the same thing that I say. I say, start a blog and write in it every day and just start putting stuff out there. So what's, how has that changed in the last 10 years is my question for you. Well, from a creator's point of view is different than from a marketer's point of view. Yeah. From a creator's point of view, we know that morning pages work for a lot of people. We know that being on a daily schedule works for people. That the key part of the advice was don't tell anybody, right? In fact, if you want, write it under another name. I would write my blog every day, even if no one read it, if not one person read it. My blog, writing it for me makes me a better creator because I have to outline something about the future. And then the act of doing that makes me think about the future differently. That's what Fred Wilson says. And Fred's a great guy. Um, and the marketing question is, are you trusted? And the problem with most social media is it is optimized for you to be distrusted. It is optimized to create dissatisfaction on the part of people who are scrolling through, doom scrolling, looking at the friends who aren't friends and the likes that aren't likes to figure out if you're popular in high school today. And so almost the worst thing I can imagine is bringing your creative work to social media. This is a really bad idea. I do think we have a marketing challenge of how do we earn permission? How do we cut through all the noise so that on a regular basis we can go, hi, I'm over here without yelling at people. No, blogging doesn't do that the way it used to. My blog yeah. traffic is way down. It's not because I'm not writing as well. It's not because there are more blogs. It's because Google doesn't like blogs and because fewer people are going and looking for them. So you're going to need to find a way to earn permission and connect with people who want to hear from you. And I don't think a blog is the modern shortcut answer. I think it's much more complicated than that. Well, it's good to hear you say that because, because I've, I've had those same exact thoughts. I mean, you put it much more eloquently than I could have, but, but the practice is still there. It's just the tactics 
have changed a little bit. And yeah, I, I really do agree with, with the social media idea, especially because it's so hard to like resist it, right? Because it seems so like grabbable, you know, like, oh, look at all these people paying attention to me, but it's just, it's never worked out for me. And I'm, I'm grateful that there's the, the use and like the Clarks and the other people out there that are showing that like, it is actually kind of worthless and, <laughs> and you don't have to do it. <laughs> well, it's good for you to say it too, because uh, we seduced a lot of people into believing that our culture needs to be 140 characters long and instant. Yeah. And I'm not sure either of those things is true. Yeah. Well, wow. Um, last but not least, like, just thank you for all the work that you've done. It's had a huge impact on my life. It's been really, really great just sitting here for this half hour and, and, and chatting with you. I've been nervous about it all day, pacing up and, <laughs> up and down my stairs. So it's a pleasure, Tim. You did great. It's super fun to talk to you about this. And uh, I'm glad the book is resonating. So thank yeah. you for that. Great. And um, I will link the, the Amazon to the show notes for the link to the book. And I'll show your blog and everything. Seth Godin, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Keep making a ruckus, man. Good to talk to you. Hey guys, it's me. It's Tim. One last time before we wrap up, just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave me an honest rating. Please follow me on Spotify. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.